Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today, we are talking about inclusive supervision with three scholars and authors of a new book by the same title. I am thrilled to be joined by three dynamic individuals to discuss today's topic. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you find these conversations to be restorative to the profession and making a contribution to the field. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Is your goal to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection, document analysis, and use of results for change? No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology, or formerly Campus Labs, can help you figure out what's next with a short survey. You'll receive customized results and tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment needs. Learn about how Anthology's products and expert consultation can empower your division with actionable data by visiting campuslabs.com SA-now. As I mentioned, I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Welcome to the three guests today. Let's get on to our conversation. So in today's episode, we are going to explore the concepts presented in a new text. Mopta Madwani Akapati says about the book in the foreword, this is more than just a scholarly text. This is more than a supervision primer. It is an invitation for us to model our highest values through our most meaningful spheres of influence, the relationship between supervisor and supervisee. Welcome to the conversation, Amy, Carmen, and Matthew. I'm so happy that you could be here with me today. So as each of you introduce yourselves, um, share something about your pathway to your current role and your areas of responsibility within student affairs and higher education. Um, and Amy, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. Thanks, Heather. Um, and hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Amy Wilson, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm an associate professor at Buffalo State College and currently serving in the chair role of the Higher Education Administration Department. Um, prior to making my transition to a full-time faculty role, my career uh, really centered um, in student leadership and engagement. Uh, for many years, I had a few years in campus activities and a fewer years in residence life, which is where I first met Heather many many years ago. Um, I made the transition in 2012 uh, to full-time faculty after really recognizing that my true passion surrounded educating and, and particularly educating new professionals in the field. <clears throat> so being a faculty in a professional preparation program has really been uh, a dream come true. Excellent. Thanks so much for being here, Amy. I appreciate you joining us today here on Student Affairs Now. Um, Carmen, welcome. 
Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Carmen McCallum and I'm an associate faculty member at Eastern Michigan University. I'm currently teaching in a leadership and counseling program. I'm very excited to be here with all of you today to discuss uh, the book. Um, my role in student affairs began several years ago when I was a program coordinator, um, which was my first position in uh, higher education. And I took that position and immediately had supervision responsibility and realized that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> so I worked that position for a while and then went into uh, becoming an academic advisor across many institutions in Michigan um, and enjoyed that role for a really long time for transitioning into graduate school and then uh, the PhD program at the University of Michigan into the Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education. Uh, like Amy, I was able to get my dream job after that, uh, which is becoming a faculty member in a higher education program, where I get to work with young professionals all, all the time who are interested in changing the field, um, working in student affairs, working with our students, undergraduate, as well as graduate students. And so I'm just um, lucky to be able to be in such a position and excited to be here and, and talk about the book. So thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Matthew, welcome to Student Affairs Now. Hi, Heather. Thanks. Thanks for having us and welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Matthew Shook. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I am an associate professor in the Department of Counseling and College Student Personnel at Shippensburg University. And I am the coordinator of College Counseling and student affairs program. Uh, prior to my role as a faculty member, I'm currently in my eighth year. Um, prior to that role, I uh, maybe unlike Amy, I grew up in residence life and housing um, and spent a significant amount of time uh, working and living in, in residence halls. And um, uh, I had spent about a decade uh, post-masters in a variety of institutions. And my last one was working for a large multi-campus um, uh, state-related institution um, prior to, to my move to becoming a faculty member. And like my, um, my colleagues here today, I really enjoyed making the transition from doing the work to actually working with our emerging professionals in uh, the classroom capacity and really helping them bring theory to practice and seeing what that looks like for them on their journey. Excellent. Well, I too teach in a student affairs professional prep program, um, not as my full-time job, so I'm envious of you all because it is truly engaging and interesting to um, interact with graduate students who are who are learning these concepts. Um, before we get into the meat of what you all mean by inclusive supervision, I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your experiences with supervision. So if you wanna share a story about a supervisory experience that you had, maybe either as a supervisor or as a supervisee, um, that informed your perspective about uh, the book. And Matthew, I'm gonna start, start with you. Sure, Heather, yeah. I um... You know, when I, I keep thinking about, about kind of the tenure around the relationship with Amy and, and Carmen, um, I would often tell the story and talk about how my dissertation was focused on it, and that was kind of the genesis. And that's actually not true entirely. It's, it's not entirely true. Um, I'm not going to focus just on one specific story, but uh, I want to talk more about feelings and experiences when I was an undergrad and then going into my graduate program. What I want to convey is that something was going on for me very early on when I felt myself leaning in towards particular supervisors and pulling away or leaning away from others. And I really needed to figure out what was going on with that. Was it me? Was I being needy? 
Um, did I just not know the field? Like what was happening for me that I felt like I could gravitate towards some and I kind of had to wear a mask and put up a barrier with, with others. Um, and that is really what started my work and passion to really explore the concept of supervision and what do we mean by that. Um, and then that resulted in my doctoral work and really centering on um, the, this concept of synergistic supervision, which was first uh, the, the, it was first coined by Winston and Creamer back in the late 90s. Um, so that is really, I've, I've always had, uh, I think, a passion because I really had a question within myself, what was going on with me where I had all of these different feelings and emotions when I was working professionally, but I had this very intimate reaction towards it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's interesting how we kind of internalize that it's like something that we are doing or not doing um, when sometimes it's just the construct of supervision as a whole. Um, Carmen, tell, tell a story that you have that informed your perspective. Sure. So it's really interesting to kind of think back uh, to those experiences. And I remember as an academic advisor, um, I worked at several institutions and I realized that I was not really getting supervision as we talk about it in the book or elsewhere. I mean, I had someone who was in charge of me, but they weren't really paying attention to if I was growing or developing or anything like that, checking in, you know, only once a year for professional development goals that didn't go anywhere. And I knew I wanted to move up. I knew I had something I wanted to contribute, but I didn't have a pathway to do that. And when I went to graduate school, I became a part of a team in a particular office. And I saw the way that they were supervising their students and also their staff. They would have collaborative meetings people were able to put, have insight and make suggestions that were taken into consideration to actually implement it. And so it made me begin to question, what were my supervisory experiences and how could it be different? And so I think that stayed in the back of my head for a little while until I got into um, faculty positions. And I said, oh, well, I'm going into higher education. This is great. Individuals will be able to learn how to be supervisors. And what I learned in the programs where I worked and probably which is true across student affairs programs today, today there are not a lot of classes that focus specifically on supervision. And so we're training these young professionals to go out and to be leaders, uh, hopefully to change the world, right? And they're gonna be in supervisory positions, but we're not necessarily giving them the skills and tools that they need in order to be super supervisors. They may learn that in their graduate assistantship, sometimes in their internship, or if they take it as an elective, but it's not a common class that is required. And I think if we're going to change the field of student affairs, particularly as it comes to supervision, we need to incorporate those um, classes into our core content. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, Amy, I think maybe you and I maybe had a similar supervisor really early on um, back at Colorado State when we were both were serving as undergrad hall directors. Um, what since then or or even then uh, would you draw upon for your for your story? Yeah, it was uh, hard to think of just one story, but I, I think um, I also want to sort of frame where this first came from this, this idea of wanting to explore this, uh, like Matthew, somewhat rooted in my dissertation work, which was focused on multicultural competence of leadership educators. But there was a small bit of uh, the research, uh, both in my study and previous studies before me, that said what the supervisor does um, may have an impact on the multicultural competence of their staff, and that's through formal or informal conversations. So it was that 
little nugget of, uh, you know, sort of positive correlation that said, I'd like to explore this more. Um, but it wasn't until sort of after we really dove into our research that I then reflected back on some of my own supervisory experiences. And one particular when I was the supervisee, um, and it was maybe my fifth year in the profession, I was in a mid-level manager role and I was uh, being supervised by a woman of color and there was an immense amount of tension in the relationship at first that I, I couldn't explain. Um, and it wasn't until she and I both became very vulnerable with one another that that relationship changed dramatically for the better. Um, and so, you know, those who have read the book or, or know some of our tenants that we'll talk about maybe later, this vulnerability was really huge in moving that supervisory relationship forward. Um, it allowed me to acknowledge that there was complexity in this relationship much greater than I had ever you know, really considered um, based on the identities of both of us and what we brought to that relationship, how we showed up in that space. And so um, her vulnerability also, you know, brought out her fears that I knew she was giving me access to something that I would only use to help elevate and support her in that role. And it, it just really changed the relationship. And so the power of that, that I didn't have language for back then in that moment has really come through in our research. And so that's been really, um, you know, interesting and powerful for me to see in this work, but at a broader perspective, and in terms of working with graduate students who we, we you know, we cultivate um, that idea of what it means to be in the supervisor relationship as graduate students. And I find most graduate assistantship supervisors to be very, very good. Um, they, they want to be in that role and they understand the importance of that role. And a year or two later, when you meet those graduate students who are now in their first year or two in the profession, um, there's just a, a life that is stifled in them. Um, and it seems that when you step into a professional role, it's suddenly an expectation of not who you are, but what you can do. And we forget this idea of holistic development that we value as a profession when we're working with students and graduate students, but we don't necessarily apply that same philosophy to our work with our staff. And I really think that's one of the, the points that I, I like to draw out from our study is that we really need to you know, adopt that same philosophical value, not just in advising, but in supervising as well. Yeah, that's really uh, rings true with my experience right out of grad school. And part of it was based on my experience in grad school, having had great supervision, my first year out, I was like, what happened? Uh, you know, how is this? This is so different. Um, so I did a little bit of uh, Googling just in general about um, workplace and supervision, and I found a Gallup poll um, that said of, of more than 1 million employed U.S. workers, um, this particular poll said that the number one reason people quit their jobs is a bad boss or immediate supervisor. And 75% of workers who had voluntarily left their jobs did so because of their bosses and not the position itself. Um, I know you talk about at the beginning of the book about retention and the high rates of departure from our field. Uh, Matthew, can you talk a little bit about some of the notable statistics within student affairs? Uh, do we have this kind of similar data and why people are leaving the profession and or specific job? Sure, thanks, Heather. Yeah, so there's, um. This is really big, right? Before we jump into inclusive supervision, we have to, uh, I think it's important for us to talk about um, some, some base assumptions that I think we all uh, on the call are approaching uh, philosophically, as well as what the data is saying. And one of the assumptions is that supervision is important. 
it's important in our field and it's important at, at all different levels, right? So it's ubiquitous regardless of position and title. Um, and it's even more important, right? Because even now, given, given the, you know, a year into the pandemic, we're seeing unprecedented, um, uh, you know, increasing demands and declining resources, right? So we early on cite some statistics where um, we, we cited literature from the 80s, the 90s, the, the 2000s, and the early 2010s, where, um, you know, if, if 75 to 80% of an institution's finances are spent on human resources, right, on human capital, um, what does it say that some of the most recent statistics are that upwards of 50% of new professionals are leaving the field within the first five years and not returning? Right, so, so some may say that there are a, a lot of reasons as to why this would be the case, but we contend that supervision, or dare I say poor supervision, um, is, is a, a factor of significance in, in that. Um, and so what do we know about that, right? We know that most individuals will probably say absolutely supervision is important, but we don't always get to, well, what does that supervision look like in practice? And with the increasing demands and declining um, resources, I myself for making this mistake as well. What's the first thing that often goes on my schedule? Um, well, it would have been the one-on-ones with my staff members, right? I was very quick that somehow those were expendable hours that were that could be negotiated. And then when I got into those into those one-on-one supervisory relationships, it was very task-driven, right? Focused on what do we need to get done. So it was actually the antithesis of the very thing that we talked about, where if we spend so much time and money and resources on human capital, why aren't we investing the same amount of time and energy to retain and celebrate and uplift those individuals? So it's very telling. And we believe that that supervision and supervision models play a significant role in not only successful onboarding, but successful retention of employees. Yeah, I just right before this call had a had a admin ask me if I could move my one on one with one of my staff members um, for a bigger meeting with the same with the same intent. So when you said that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that just happened to me. Um, I'm sorry, Gabby, I will I will reschedule with you. <laughs> um, so, Amy, what are the tenants you, you talk about this in the book and in, in one like kind of primary section? Um, what are the tenets of inclusive supervision? And then how does one know it when they experience it, that it, that it is that? Um, it's like, is it just apparent or is there, are there clues? Yeah, I, I love that question of how do we know that we are experiencing that? And I, without getting into the weeds of our research, I think it's important to sort of frame that, that that's really what we set out to identify and really what we wanted to know. Um, and we did that in a way in which we sought out participants who believed their supervisors were multiculturally competent um, because we wanted to know what that looks like in action. Um, and we didn't define multiculturally competent for the participants because we wanted them to really be defining that of what that looks like, um, to really identify those tangible practices that others could do because clearly these were good supervisory relationships in which people valued that and appreciated what they were getting in that space. 
Um, we used multicultural competence at that time because this was 2013, 2014 before the, the professions had really um, you know, evolved into social justice and inclusion as the core competency. And we felt that there was much more research on multicultural competence in the profession. And so a, a bit more well-known in what that means. Um, so, so how do you know, or, or what does that look like? Um, you know, all of the narratives of those participants who spoke about their supervisors really became the model and became the, the action items in our inventory. Um, but all of it sort of pared down into what we believe are four tenets of inclusive supervision. And so I'll briefly kind of walk through these. The first of which is the foundation of creating safe spaces. Um, and so, you know, uh, obviously seems very simplistic in, in what it um, says, but is obviously also one of the most complex things to create um, for a supervisor. So this may be done through um, creating a very open and trusting environment where staff can give feedback without fear, um, where there is an, an openness to different styles, different ways of thinking, different approaches that every voice is valued no matter what level you are within that organizational chart. Um, that there's um, a real um, openness to uh, and an ethic of care in the personal interactions um, and where supervisors help staff navigate uh, the culture of the office, the culture of the institution, um, and just some of those boundaries. So those are some of the things that you might feel or experience if you're in a, a safe space or where a supervisor has uh, really strived to create a safe space. Um, the second tenet I, I did allude to earlier with respect to cultivating holistic development. And so much like we do with our students as we think about them being these complex beings, um, we talk about the various dimensions of identity um, and supervisors who acknowledge uh, those dimensions, who welcome and celebrate those dimensions where appropriate. Um, that's about the nurturing and cultivating um, every aspect of who someone is in that office, knowing that um, they can't take off uh, certain aspects of their identity like an outfit when they come into the office. And so we are who we are and we show up in that space because we are uh, mothers or fathers or caregivers for uh, parents at this you know, time um, and, and whatever that might look like. In addition to our personality, our race, our gender, our sexual orientation, all of that comes into um, that space. And so supervisors who are more adept at um, bringing those identities and welcoming those identities in the space create more responsive and, and satisfied staff. Um, the third tenet um, is, is demonstrating vulnerability, which I alluded to a little bit with my own personal story as well, that um, I think when we heard the narratives of our participants um, and started pulling that out, this was one that I, I was most surprised by for some reason, because as we looked for people who were multiculturally competent, uh, the consistent narrative was that these supervisors were seen as extremely competent, first and foremost, because they were willing to acknowledge that they didn't know everything. Um, and they admitted to their limits, but they sought out opportunities to understand. Um, they acknowledged their cultural mistakes and they were willing to engage in the discomfort of those moments, um, you know, those personal moments of vulnerability um, that have the power to transform. Um, and I'd be remiss, obviously, if we didn't mention, you know, Brene Brown being the leading expert and researcher on vulnerability. Um, you know, she defines it as that uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure, um, and all of that is present. And in those who have experienced that moment of vulnerability, you know how uncomfortable it can feel in the moment, 
um, but our hope is that you've also felt the, the hope um, and the power in the after uh, of those moments. Um, but that's, I think, a really powerful uh, narrative that in this short time that we've been talking about our, our work, that some of the stories that have come out after a vulnerability have been really powerful moments in transforming supervisory relationships. And then finally, the fourth tenet is, is building capacity in others, which we um, identify as both an action of inclusive supervisors, but also an outcome um, of inclusive supervision. So when your supervisor actively um, invites and welcomes conversations about social justice and inclusion or focuses professional development, um, professional goal setting around enhancing your competency in this area, genuinely models inclusiveness in every action and interaction, uh, they're both intentionally and unintentionally building your capacity to do the same. Um, and so this becomes, I think, the imperative for our profession as we seek to change our campuses. Sometimes that can seem overwhelming. Um, and as one colleague we spoke with recently, she talked about um, the impact of the book for her was recognizing where her impact could be felt. And that's starting with her staff and, and modeling these actions and hopefully, hopefully having that ripple effect um, and that's why it's so important that um, it's not just a model for graduate student supervision or a model for entry-level supervision, but really wanting to echo that the, the model is important at all levels of supervision. Yeah, I think this model is, has transcends also student affairs. Um, and I think there's so many pieces of it that are valuable beyond as well. Um, Carmen, what are some of the barriers then of inclusive supervision? Mm -hmm. So um, as Amy uh, clearly laid out um, the tenants, I think thinking about some of the barriers really starts from up top and the environment of the space. And so you have to establish a culture of wanting to have inclusive supervision, wanting to be a space where you can create safe spaces and demonstrate vulnerabilities and things of that sort. And so you have to start there. If you're not willing to create that space uh, for your individuals and for yourself, then that can be considered a barrier to inclusive supervision. Uh, another barrier would be lack of vulnerability. So as Amy mentioned, uh, having vulnerability is one of the tenants and one of the strengths. And as Renee Brown said, um, a lot of times people think of vulnerability as weakness, but it's actually probably the most powerful thing you can do. And so when a supervisor is not willing to be vulnerable, when they're not willing to admit that they made a cultural mistake or <laughs> that they don't know everything, it creates a barrier to be be being able to have inclusive supervision which then leads to another barrier, which is trust. And so you have to create an environment where mistakes are not um, met with punitive responses. So if I am a supervisee and I'm not understanding something or I make a mistake and that's uh, 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 penalized in some kind of way, then I'm going to be less likely and, more, and less uh, willing to come forward and talk to you and have a conversation about what happened and how to uh, approach the situation differently because that trust is not in that relationship. So it really starts by, the, by creating a culture that wants to work towards being inclusive. Um, something, I was in another conversation about another concept, but I think it's very similar that inclusive supervision is a destination with no ending. 
So it's not like you wake up one morning and you decide, I'm an inclusive supervisor. You may be able to work some of the tenants. You may be able to embody some of the principles, but you should constantly be working towards being an inclusive supervisor as long as you are a supervisor. And that's at all levels. So beginning, mid-level, or all the way up to VP uh, or president of the university. We should all be working to work towards these tenants and these principles if we want to create an environment where everyone feels comfortable. I, I want to pick up on that last point because when I was thinking about this concept and prepping for our conversation today, I was thinking a lot about my own career. I've been in student affairs for 20 plus years and I guess by some standards we can be considered successful. Um, and I've noticed as of late that some supervisors, particularly my peers and those above me at the AVP or VP level seem to believe that um, competent, well-adjusted staff, you know, as you say in the book, don't need supervision. And I actually really disagree. Um, and so I'm curious about how what might I encourage my colleagues, which are my peers or other directors in my division and our VP and AVP leadership to engage in this conversation um, without pointing out the fact that they're not doing it well. <laughs> if, if, Oh, go ahead, Carmen. No, no, Sorry. go ahead. Go right ahead. As uh, Heather, as, as, as you were talking, you, you said as of late or something that yeah. in, in terms of, you know, recently they've been saying this. And it made me think, you know, I defended my dissertation 14 years ago. And a very quick story. I, I you know, I, I'm, this, I'm this young doctoral candidate, right, hoping to be called doctor and get these letters. And, and um, there were a couple people allowed around the table that were readers that could ask me questions. And um, one person was sitting there, I, I did not know who they were, um, uh, but said, you know, you make a lot of, a lot of um, critical direct statements in your chapter five. And what would you say to someone that basically says, there's no time for this, you know, good, good supervisees don't need supervision. What would you say to those individuals? And I didn't mean to sound flippant when I said that, but I said my response would be make time. Yeah. And, and like my heart like like was pounding in my chest because I didn't <laughs> want to sound so I, I didn't want to come across as as disrespectful. But I think my response would be the same, right? We're really talking about a paradigm shift where this is a philosophical um, underpinning that that um, you know those good employees, if you will, and I'm using that in quotes, right? Competent employees mm -hmm. are that because of the dedicated supervision or it is a part of what helped them become those, those um, competent professionals. So supervision, it needs to be a paradigm that it is for all. And I love what Carmen said that it is an ongoing journey happening at all levels, all the time. And if you look at it, that it's not a destination, but it's a journey, imagine how it could transform our entire field. Yeah. I don't know if I, either of the two of you also have thoughts on how to promote this across a division, which, um, and I think the other part is like everybody's trying to do more with less, right? And, and I think it does often end up being, it's one of those intangibles that you can't see. It's not programming or planning something. And, you know, writing a report, um, you know, how do you know that you're doing it well is part of what makes this whole thing complex. 
Yeah, and I, I guess to Matthew's earlier content about, you know, the attrition in the field, it's, I guess my response was, would be, we can't afford not to do this. We can't mm -hmm. afford not to invest in our staff. And so maybe that's part of the, the conversation is in what ways are you investing in your staff, right? Those, those good professionals who now are burning candles at all ends, uh, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think this is a mo the most critical environment in the remote work environments um, to really be um, holding your staff accountable for investing in their staff in, in these human ways, right? Yeah, yeah. And Heather, well, you can always tell them to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, we're going to buy 10 copies of this for our division, right? Um, and I was thinking about that, like, not only just the applicability within the units that I that I work in, but it really is applicable at all levels. In fact, in my ProDevo class, I assigned two chapters and we're going to we're going to delve into this because I, as you all mentioned earlier, I don't know that we're necessarily teaching or talking directly about supervision. Um, you know, in the other classes that are happening in, in the, in the, um, in the program specifically. And I also noted that there are many practical tools that accompany this book. So it's not just as, as Mata said at the, at the beginning, it's not just the scholarly piece or a primer, but you have all these appendices and, and e-resources, including a self-assessment. Um, Matthew, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you develop those, but then also what are the ways that you envision those tools being utilized? Sure, I can, I can start us off and I can remember we were at a, a, a writing retreat somewhere during one of the early years that we were talking about this and we were developing the prospectus and if anyone has ever worked on one to try to um, get a, a book contract, it's um, how do you envision individuals using this book? and it was really important to all three of us that this be a book that was very practical, meaning we want people to write in the margins, right? We want it to be well-worn and used, that it has to be something that practically cannot be applied to individuals at, at all levels. Um, so you you made mention of, of the, the resources, and there are quite a few specifically targeted in each of the chapters talking about each of the four tenants, but there's also two chapters that focus specifically on case studies at a variety of levels. And the first, the first chapter that we talk about, there's case studies and then we kind of talk about how we might theoretically reflect upon it and maybe take a particular approach. But then the next, the, the next uh, chapter is just case studies where we then have have um, guided questions at the end to help folks think through what they might do. The other thing that I do wanna point out and I'll turn it over to my colleagues is when you look at using this at all different levels, going back again to, to Brene Brown and this idea of vulnerability, it challenges us to have to take risks. So when we look at the inventory, it's powerful regardless of the level of the supervisory dyad. But I would encourage supervisors to look at the supervisee and say, I want you to take the inventory and rate me, right? Yeah. How do you create that, that space of trust and vulnerability to say, to say there's no wrong answers, but I need you to think constructively about whether or not my supervision style is congruent or incongruent with how you envision our supervisory dyad. So using that to basically using the inventory as a baseline or a, um, a rubric or a, a platform to launch this conversation about 
where are we congruent and where are we missing each other? So that's just a couple yeah. thoughts in terms of what, what the, how the book can be used. That would be a powerful conversation for sure. Carmen, I, I think, do you want to talk a little bit about graduate students in particular and how to use it in classes? Um, yeah, so I think it's a really powerful tool to use uh, with graduate student in classes. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember that inclusive supervision is intentional. Right. It's not something that you wake up in the morning and you and it just comes to you. You have to actually read and understand that there are skills and development that you should do in order to be able to practice inclusive supervision. And so one way that the book can be used is just to introduce the concept of inclusive supervision to graduate students, but have them take the case studies, have them go through and do the inventory, reflect on um, who they are now and what skills do they need to develop, right? So they can take the inventory as if they were a supervisor and then say, okay, well, I'm obviously missing these things. I can work through my graduate training, my assistantship, my graduate, um, my internship to build on those in those capacities, right? And so I think that's um, several ways that the book could be used with graduate students at multiple levels. Um, um, we have some undergraduate students who approach us all the time about coming into our master's program. And we have a lead program in our particular department for undergraduate students who want to focus on leadership. This can easily be transferred into a leadership class as well as a master's level in higher education or PhD in educational leadership. So I believe that it, it is a, a very useful tool for students at all, at all levels. Yeah. Um, Amy, I'm going to jump down a little bit because I want to talk. I want to talk before um, before we get too far down about some of the um, self awareness that's required. And I was wondering about this as I was reading through the inventory itself as as one of the resources. Um, and I'll be honest, I made some assumptions about how I could see my colleagues and my supervisor as completing it. Like they'd be like, "Of course, I do all the things. Like mm -hmm. amazing, right?" Um, and I think you just spoke to this as well. Like one of the things is being vulnerable, um, using this inventory to solicit feedback. Uh, Amy, tell me a little bit about how you could see that working, um, you know, entry level, mid level, senior level, and what kinds of skills and abilities does one need to approach that conversation directly? Yeah, good, good question. Um, and I think Matthew started to allude to this a bit. Um, so while it is uh, initially, first and foremost, a reflection tool for anyone at any level to um, assess their own uh, progress towards uh, becoming a more inclusive supervisor, um, it can be easily turned into almost a 360 feedback in which you have your peers, your maybe even your supervisor completed. Um, but it, you're absolutely right in terms of what needs to happen in order to make that an effective tool in that capacity, um, actioning both vulnerability as we've talked about it, but also having created a safe space for your supervisees to give you that feedback. Um, and so if one is going to use the inventory as this tool, um, it's really important that they have uh, created an environment in which people feel like they can be honest and they can be constructive and that um, there's not going to be defensiveness in terms of how, what they hear. And I am guilty of having done the same because I think people really do wanna feel like they're doing the right thing. Um, and so sometimes feedback is hard to get um, and receive. So it's really important that if supervisors are gonna use the supervisor or the inventory in that way, um, that they're aware of the level of trust that already exists 
Um, and if there is a lack of trust in some of those supervisory relationships, one of the things that we've talked about in examining, there's no linear sequence in these tenants in terms of how to strive uh, towards them. But if there is a lack of trust in which that safe space is not there, as Carmen said earlier, one of the things that can help transform that and, and sort of rebuild that trust is by being vulnerable. Um, and so this can be a tool to say, I, I want to do better, I want to be better in this relationship. Um, let's dialogue about how this could, uh, what this could look like in this office, what it could look like in our supervisory relationship, um, and what it could look like in this environment. So um, sort of chicken and egg, one of those things maybe needs to happen first in order to effectively do what you're suggesting with the, the tool. Um, but I think if uh, the, the feedback is provided via the inventory, then creating that dialogue about, okay, what does this look like in action here in this relationship? Um, but I think approaching with humility, vulnerability is always the, the best thing in that case. Yeah, and, and, and related to that, I think you just, you just kind of queued up my next kind of theme, which is that the safe space is really a foundational tenant. Um, the, the diagram or graphic that you have in the book that, you know, these different other pillars kind of rest upon that as, as, a, as, a, um, as the lower level, right? And the most important kind of foundational piece um, and I appreciate that in the chapter on creating a safe space, you bring up the construct of safe space and how it can be somewhat problematized, right? And I like, I liked a lot your reframing. So for those of you who are already like the safe space is, you know, problematic, they talk about that in the book. Um, but I am really curious about how, as a supervisor, um, one creates that sense of psychological safety and the role specifically that power plays in this. Um, as related to social identities, for example, um, can a non-binary supervisee ever truly be safe if their direct supervisor often misgenders them? Carmen, do you want to do you want to start with that, and then we can pass it to others as they, as they see fit? Yeah, so I think that is a really interesting question, and I think that power dynamic does show up in supervisor supervisory relationships, and it can be hard to be feel psychologically safe. Um, in the space that you described. And that's why it really starts with the supervisor to be able to create that, that, that space of, 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 of vulnerability. Um, so it's really interesting that you mentioned our model because when we first uh, set out to do this uh, research project, we had created a model based on um, interviews and we thought that all of the tenants were really equal. Um, but as we kept doing research and we did the quantitative interest instruments, we realized that without creating a safe space, none of the other tenants can survive. Like they were all crumbled. So it's really, you have to start with creating a safe space. And that really does start with the supervisor being able to do that. So if you're a supervisee and you're in a space where you're not feeling um, safe psychologically, um, you have to, I guess the best way is to say is to find the environment where you are. Right. Mm -hmm. um, for myself, when I was working as an academic advisor, I wasn't getting what I needed in my department. I found it elsewhere in another department. Right. So you may have to find those safe spaces elsewhere if your department that you're in is not willing to make changes in, uh, in order to cultivate such safe spaces. But being able to, to use your own power that you have in the space that you have in, uh, in order to do that for yourself or others. And colleagues, want to? Yeah, I guess the only thing that I would add, um, you know, and, and everyone sometimes has to be sort of a, a judge of a person's 
heart and their actions um, and to know that as a supervisor, I have made cultural mistakes in the past and, and all I could do was apologize and strive to do better and be better. And so um, in the example in which you gave, if that, that supervisor is not trying, right? Um, not trying hard enough to learn on those mistakes and to, to be better then I think Carmen's point is astute. Um, there's only so much that supervisees can do in these situations, um, but we do make the, the point in the very last chapter um, that while this book is intended for supervisors to really think about their own philosophical approach to supervision that supervisees can learn something from this as well in terms of how to build a relationship with a supervisor and so um, as I said you know vulnerability on my part as a supervisee helped transform the relationship with my supervisor and so sometimes it's a, a willingness to engage deeply in that relationship that can really um, propel it forward but sometimes it does take an initiative by a supervisee to, to be the first just to step out. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really tough. So um, this has been such a fabulous conversation and I always wish we had more time. Um, so as we conclude every, every episode of our podcast, we always ask this question. So our podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Um, I'm curious what each of you are pondering, questioning, troubling, you know, where you're taking this research next. Um, and if we could, uh, you know, each share something, that would be awesome. And Matthew, I'm going to start with you. Sure, Heather, thanks. And I think I just want to start off where I'm at is um, I'm grateful. You know, I'm grateful for this opportunity. I'm, I'm grateful for people that are listening because I think it shows an investment of, of us wanting to continually do better. So if you are a supervisor, Thank you, thank you for, for, for looking inward. If you are a supervisee, thank you for the work that you do primarily, probably because you're, you're in some capacity on, on the front line. So I'm just, I'm sitting, I think in gratitude right now, but I'm also very excited because we're kind of on, I don't know, inclusive supervision 2.0, I guess, if you will. Um, we have started to engage in um, uh, uh, the next qualitative phase of our study, where, as Amy had said, we presented the question to folks, um, do you consider your supervisor to be multiculturally competent? Well, now what we're doing is we are interviewing supervisory dyads based upon the supervisee who believes their supervisor um, exhibits the four tenets of inclusive supervision. So I'm really excited because it I feel like I'm in a very privileged position to be able to try to listen and elevate individuals' voices that truly are doing the work in our field. So that's what I'm sitting with and, and that's kind of where our research is going. That is so exciting. I love paired reflection opportunities because I think that reflection that happens in community is really powerful. Um, so that will be that will be really interesting. interesting and Heather, I think it, illust it illustrates the risk that we're talking about, right? That idea of vulnerability yeah. to truly, you know, have a supervisee put themselves out there, but then also have the supervisor kind of reflect and say, how do you think you meet this? And then also, where do you think you need to grow? So I think they're kind of living out the, that tenet of, of demonstrating vulnerability. Wow, that's great. Carmen, what are you pondering, thinking about Troubling now. Uh, so it's really interesting as uh, Matthew talked about our next research project 2.0, we pondered back and forth what that should be. And so I am really excited about 
uh, was coming up with that. But also when we get to 3.0, <laughs> where we get to take a deeper dive into some of the tenants. And so we know that vulnerability is something that is definitely part of inclusive supervision. And part of that is acknowledging your limitations. But what does that really look like? Like, is there is it more detailed? Is it more nuanced? And, and how can we help others who are not comfortable doing that be able to um, take that step in their supervisory practices? Um, I'm also sitting here wondering, how do you get a fabulous job like Heather Shea? You know, <laughs> all these wonderful people about these wonderful topics. <laughs> as, a, as a learner, I just have to say, like, I love diving in and having these, like, they're like little mini lit reviews, right, on every single topic that I'm interested in. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, Amy, what are you thinking about now? I uh, echo my colleagues, um, and I think like Matthew, I, I've uh, labeled this year a year of hope, and uh, you probably can all infer many things from that, but I am very hopeful about uh, what can happen um, when people adopt, you know, the philosophy that we're, we're speaking about. Um, I've also been wondering lately um, and engaging in a, a, an additional research project um, around professionalism in our field and the meanings of professionalism, and it was actually through a reading this summer, um, the white fragility, uh, white professionals reading that this conversation sort of came about. Um, and then we did a um, with our, our students this summer. Uh, and so the intersection of this has been kind of interesting for me to think about and particularly in creating safe spaces and how we define professionalism has an impact on that space. And so um, that's sort of some of the side stuff that I'm, I'm working on as well, but certainly very related to this. Um, and I'm excited about exploring that and how identity shapes are the meanings of professionalism. Oh my gosh, that will be a fabulous uh, future conversation, I think, on Student Affairs Now. I can't <laughs> wait to hear 2.0 and 3.0, um, the podcast version. So I am so grateful for your time today um, to talk with me on Student Affairs Now. Um, so thank you for spending the last 45 minutes or hour, or however long we've been chatting. Um, and also thanks to our sponsor, Anthology. Uh, for those who are listening, uh, you can receive reminders about Student Affairs Now. Um, and all of the great episodes by subscribing to our newsletter. Our archives are growing. Um, I think we're at 25 or so episodes and uh, you can find the complete list at studentaffairsnow.com. Um, to subscribe to the podcast, you know, just go to whatever place you get your podcast, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Um, and you can also subscribe to our social channels. Um, this might be cheesy, but if you leave a five-star review, it really helps um, elevate the conversation and build a community. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to all of our fabulous guests, everybody who's watching and listening. Make it a great week, everyone.